Hello from Cybrary, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. During unprecedented times when cyber and kinetic military actions coalesce, what can we learn about the evolving nature of warfare? Mike McClellan and Rafe Pilling join us from the Counter Threat Unit at SecureWorks to discuss the latest cyber attacks in Ukraine. What is distinctive about these emergent types of wiper malware, and how can we better discern the objectives of threat actors? Get advice from the security research experts about how your organization can enhance defenses and incident response planning in the face of new threats. Hello, and thank you for joining the Cybrary podcast. I'm Will Carlson, the Senior Director of Content here at Cybrary, and I am really excited today to talk about a very relevant topic, um, the cyber initiative and the cyber warfare campaign that's been going on in Ukraine and the fall-on impacts that could be expected to domestic organizations as well. It's really great to be joined today by two professionals in the space that know volumes more about this topic than I do. Uh, two folks joining us from Dell SecureWorks, uh, Rafe and Mike. Uh, Rafe and Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your background and what it is that you do. Sure, uh, thanks for having me. So yeah, my name's Mike McClellan. I'm a director in the Counter Threat Unit at SecureWorks. That's the research group. Uh, our job is to maintain an understanding of the threats of what the bad guys are doing and make sure we're using that knowledge to inform and protect our customers. SecureWorks, for anyone who's not aware, is a managed security service provider. We've got something like 4,500 or 5,000 clients globally, provide a range of managed services, incident response, threat intelligence, that kind of thing. So our job in the research group really is to try and help inform those, those protections and those managed controls by applying our understanding of what the bad guys are doing um, and I'll let Rafe introduce himself as well. Thanks, Mike. And uh, thanks, Will, for having us on. Uh, it's really good to be here. Uh, so, yeah, Rafe Billing, um, senior security researcher uh, in the cyber intelligence cell. I work alongside Mike. Um, normally, my my sort of uh, air responsibility is um, is Iranian cyber threats, but uh, I've been studying Russian cyber threats since sort of 2013. And um, and with everything that's going on uh, at the moment, um, been been helping out with the, the Russian side of things on this as well. So... It's uh, it's all been very interesting. That's great. So I wonder if we can just kind of jump right in and and talk a little bit about what's the timeline that we know and understand about the cyber warfare initiative that we've seen in Ukraine so far, and you know what components have we seen uh, implemented in that total offensive from the start until today? Yeah, I can I can take that. So um, I guess it depends where you want to start the clock on all this. Uh, if you kind of look back to to twenty fourteen. Uh, it feels like that was maybe the, the turning point from when things sort of really ratcheted up a notch in uh, in Ukraine in terms of um, some of the cyber attacks, cyber activity, uh, a lot of stuff dating back to then in terms of cyber procurement. We had um, the, the black energy attacks in 2014. Uh, and from then on, it was a sort of a steady, steady beat of, of cyber attacks, um, often involving things like, like black energy, black energy two. Uh, we had attacks on the power grid in, in 2015. Um, and again in 2016, as well as um, sort of the, the telebots uh, attacks on the financial sector, and that sort of continued. Even with 2017, we had we had NotPetya, um, which which everyone sort of found out about, usually through sort of unpleasant ways. <laughs> Bringing us up to to date, um, just in 2022, we had the uh, 
uh, first round of attacks in January uh, with the sort of defacements and the, the Whispergate uh, wiper attacks and some DDoS activity. And then more recently in February, just before, unfortunately, the, the eve of uh, the invasion, the, the sort of DDoS defacements and, and hermetic wiper um, attacks. It's been really interesting for me to see the the kind of the coalescing of both the cyber offensive and the kinetic offensive and to really see them used in concert together. I wonder, have have we observed this in the past? Is this unique for this particular engagement um, to really see the kinetic and cyber warfare being used together in a concerted campaign? So uh, not, well, this is somewhat unique, obviously, given the, the scale of the invasion um, the scale of what's going on there, the reaction from the rest of the world. Uh, as Ray said, Russia has got a history of conducting these kinds of attacks against Ukraine, but not just against Ukraine. We've seen them use cyber capabilities against Georgia um, shortly prior to the, the incursion into Georgia, and I think it was 2008. Um, and we've seen other other kinds of things before. So it's, it's rare in, in what we do to see cyber capability so closely coupled with military activity. Uh, but Russia has proved in the past that this is a a tool it has for trying to conduct its sort of foreign policy objectives and its military objectives, and it will use cyber capabilities blended with more conventional military capabilities. So this is definitely an unusual situation, but not completely, uh, you know, rare. Not not completely something we haven't seen before. Yeah, it's interesting the scale of this, right, uh, Mike? You mentioned um, just. Having all it all come together in such a focused way on on the world stage is has you know been unfortunate and but really interesting from a, a research perspective to see how that's going to play out. I wonder what what malware variants have we seen used? I know Rafe, you mentioned some of those. I, I'm curious what some of the objectives we've been able to discern from uh, the malware that's been deployed and how that might be different from how those malware variants may have been used in the past or what. Tweaks and changes have been made to the malware to accomplish, uh, you know, Russia's, Russia's specific set of objectives with this offensive. I think one of the the interesting things, perhaps, is that we we haven't seen as much overt cyber activity as we might have expected, um, particularly sort of following the the invasion, uh, and given the the sort of historical precedence of some of the dis, dis, the disruptive attacks in in Ukraine and how successful they were in the past against sort of like the energy sector, for example. So, and even, I will say, I guess, that even the activity that we've seen so far with Whispergate and Hermetic Wifer, we're not directly attributing to to Russia at this stage. So it, it appears, you know, tightly coupled with the conflict, but um, we we certainly haven't attributed it to one of the, the Russian sets that we track to date, um, for example, and that's, that's likely to still be the case. So I guess one of the, one of the similarities with past activity um, is that, that these things are different and new. So there's wipers that have sort of come out of nowhere, no sort of past history. Now, admittedly, in some of the past attacks, there were common themes like black energy, and there were multiple incidents, both in Ukraine and in other countries, that involved sort of either the same implants or, or, or malware with the similar sort of shared code overlaps. With these wipers, they're sort of brand new, haven't seen, seen them before. Um, Whispergate was interesting in that it combined sort of Crimeware, a crimeware loader, and other sort of crimeware components with uh, with custom wiper for the MBR and for, for files, um, and then hermetic wiper again is kind of interesting in that it, it it's completely distinct from Whispergate, um, doesn't use a like a crimeware loader, um, and appears to have had its own sort of worm uh, 
um, propagation mechanism in the form of Hermetic Wizard, as um, as Isa published on, um, which fortunately didn't turn into another sort of NotPetya. And again, no code overlap that we've seen so far with, with other things we've previously attributed to either Russia or, or anyone else at, at this stage. Um, and yeah, then some other kind of oddball ones like the Partygate ransomware, if you will, or, or Crypto Wiper, um, allegedly seen at the same time um, or, or sort of re reported to have been seen at the same time as Hermetic Wiper. And yet, like, why, why, why deploy a crypto wiper at the same time as a kind of more traditional file wiper? It doesn't, I don't know, it seems an odd thing to do. So maybe, the, maybe there are other elements of these attacks that we're not seeing that kind of make them make sense in, in the context. But, um, but yeah, certainly a new raft of uh, malware. We've, he said, also published on the Isaac wiper. Again, it's not clear how that fits into the overall picture other than it was seen in Ukraine um, and, and conducting sort of destructive attacks. Uh, and then on the periphery of that, we've seen other activity that, that sort of cert, the, the Ukrainian search has reported on uh, involving SaintBot. And there have been persistent campaigns going back into last year that have been targeted the government there um, using things like COVID, using NATO themes um, to, to deliver that malware. Again, that's sort of on the border of crimeware. So it's kind of where does that fit into this, this overall puzzle? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of moving parts, certainly a lot of new malware being introduced. Um, which is, is kind of what we might expect with these sort of almost fire and forget type cyber weapons, if you want to use that term. But um, these sort of cyber capabilities that sort of used at a short time and then then dropped. Um, but neither of those or none of those so far appear to be particularly sophisticated either. I mean, even like Norpetia was was more sophisticated than than any of those that we've seen so far, even if the propagation mechanism made it go a bit wild. Do you think that indicates that these were purpose-built for this particular offensive? Is it still too early to tell? Is there benefit to you know, uh, an invading country to have net new malware to come in and to deploy things that haven't been seen before in the past to try to evade current detections and defenses? I mean, I, I would certainly say that's, that's a good part of it. Novelty is, um, is sort of one of the best tactics you can, you can employ when it comes to evading um, security controls. Don't, don't look like anything that anyone's seen before. That said, I mean, these will have been deployed after the threat actors had, had gained access to the environment over some extended period of time. So, you know, these weren't overnight successes. Um, there will have been a period of work put in beforehand. Um, and that, I mean, that kind of leads on to what we've been telling clients in terms of the malware itself might be brand new, but the, the way it was deployed into the network will have been via things that we've seen before that we have detections for, that kind of stuff. So we have to kind of put it in that sort of context and, um, yeah, there's certainly no no magic involved here. And I think, I think one that's of really the battle that is that we the targets we we know this has been deployed against are not are not necessarily the ones that would directly support a military operation. Then you know they're not targeting they haven't been targeting infrastructure designed to enable it enable the military forces to have more success or move faster. It appears that a big a big chunk of the motivation here was just to create confusion, undermine trust in the government and in the financial system. So. One of the other reasons for using malware that's not been seen before is to make it harder to attribute, to just create more confusion around what's going on and just, you know, really, really drive home that sense of disorientation for the population as part of a an effort to, if you like, kind of soften up the target environment for when military forces are deployed. So there's a, potentially a few different motivations here. Um, but as Ray says, you know, there's a number of reasons why it's, it's advantageous to deploy wipers that no one's seen before to try and get around some sort of traditional defences. I wonder too, Rafe, you mentioned, and Mike, you may have commented on this as well, that 
um, the, the seeming disconnect between the offensive in general, like there may be some blind spots that we have and not understanding how those pieces fit together. But I wonder if either of you think it's possible as well that there's just some opportunistic attacks that are happening from other uh, threat actor groups that are targeting Ukraine, um, as we've seen in the past before. Right? I mean, there's not necessarily, since we don't have full attribution yet, that work takes a significant amount of time. Uh, is there any intel yet indicating that there may be others at play here or just hired thugs for the Russian government that we haven't seen on, on the space before? I think there is. I mean, I think there will be a, a background level of, um, uh, as there was will have been before the sort of conflict broke out, a background level of um, sort of cyber activity, whether it's criminal or, or other, um, that will have been conducted. I mean, I've, I've been looking at things that have been using um, sort of references to the, the SBU, the sort of security services in Ukraine, as a theme in, in file names and things like that. Is that just sort of run-of-the-mill crimeware, or is that part of some sort of uh, more targeted operation that's using using those themes and using crimeware as sort of more generic malware to hinder attribution? Is is unclear, um, but there certainly will be other cyber activity going on. Um, I mean, there have been reports, for example, in Ukraine of soldiers and civilians receiving uh, SMS messages with sort of propaganda or, or sort of messages spreading fear and, and that kind of stuff. So that's another kind of aspect of whether you call it electronic warfare or, or sort of the cyber side of things to try to influence and coerce the population and the, the military forces. So definitely will be other things going on. I think they've just taken a backseat to, you know, the sort of military offensive. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting as as, as time goes on and, and more research and analysis is done just to see all of the different areas and of impact. And, you know, I think there's a lot of resources focused on the, the more seemingly obvious things, but I imagine that we'll see more and more come to light in the periphery that have, have been happening and on underway as well um yeah i mean i was gonna say i think i think you're right that there's a significant fog of war around all this as well it's very hard to get accurate reporting out about about anything right now particularly cyber attacks which which even in, in peacetime you know take some time to become known about and for information to emerge so i'm sure more will come out i think ray's absolutely right though. i think the the kinetic campaign has sort of taken over and took over quite quickly from the sort of cyber component but there may well be other things that have been happening that we're just not sighted on and will take some time to sort of crystallize after the event as people start to gather up some of those facts and, and make assessment around it. And conversely, something else Mike and I have had to deal with is, is kind of deconflicting things that might be related to the conflict from everything else. So suddenly, like every cyber incident is, is you know, potentially reprisals, potentially sort of um, uh, offensive activity from, from Russia. And yeah, there's a lot of that stuff that goes on that is nothing to do with any of that. And, uh, that's a big part of this. Yeah, like the, the biggest threat to our customers, for the most part, continues to be things like ransomware. And we are having to continue to remind people that actually, you know, there is potential for some of these things to have some loose connection. But actually, there are lots of threats out there that were here before this all started and will continue to be there um, going forward. We have to make sure we're protecting against. Yeah, I, I, that's really interesting, Mike, that you mentioned that. I know, Rafe, you, you alluded to this as well, that the, we, so far, I, I have not seen any indication of net new zero days that have been exploited to ultimately do any of this work. So we're still still very much in the world of, of known vulnerabilities being exploited to get access to these environments. The net new things are just the code that's being deployed once they're there. And you know these these threat actors may have been in some of these environments for who knows how long? We may never know. So, um, is it really as simple as you know, patch the things that are known and and have really good cyber and security hygiene? So, so I think 
I think there have been steps taken to avoid a repeat of what happened in 2017 with NotBetcher, which used a fairly novel distribution mechanism. I mean, Trojanizing software updates was not a new thing, but the way in which it was done was relatively, um, it's certainly been given some thought, was relatively sophisticated. And, and the way it's propagated within networks meant that it quickly spread out of control and you know, impacted organizations globally. It definitely feels like, with what we've seen in Ukraine so far, there has been a deliberate effort to avoid that kind of collateral damage. So we have seen, as Ray said, preparation work going to these intrusions, access for potentially weeks or months before the ramps, before the wipers have been deployed. You know, deliberate steps to avoid other organizations being impacted, probably because of a concern about inadvertently dragging NATO into a conflict by doing things which might be constituted as a cyber attack on a NATO nation or on, or on kind of significant Western organizations. So I think we, we have seen a lot more control around this. We've seen, as you say, a lot more conventional techniques used to gain access and to deploy the, the malware. Um, the the attacks in many ways are no different to a ransomware attack. It's just the targeting has been a bit different. So for organizations who are not in Ukraine, as I say, the the sorts of considerations that go into defending against ransomware will be applicable to these threats as well if we see a situation where these kind of wiper attacks spread outside of Ukraine, um, which at the moment looks quite unlikely, but it depends how things pan out over the next few weeks. I think that's an interesting one, Mike. I'd like to just dig into a little bit more. Um, you, you mentioned the similarities here of ransomware. I mean, are is it really the objectives that are different here? Right. So there's no intention of obviously including a decryption key. Uh, and I'm curious for the audience here, what's the difference between what we're observing in ransomware and the mechanisms by that work, the way that works, and what we've seen these wipers doing in Ukraine? Well, I mean, one of the major differences is having the ability to recover your data. Obviously, for a ransomware operator, it's quite important that if an organization chooses to pay the money, they'll be able to get their data back. So they will take steps to make sure that the encryption they use is, is reversible. What we're seeing with these wipers, even the ones that pretend to be ransomware by displaying a ransom note, is that they are deleting or overwriting data in a way that means it can't be recovered. So even if you want to recover your systems or the information that's been lost, you can't do that. So you know that's a significant difference. Um, some of the cryptographic techniques used, I guess, are, are somewhat similar, but that's the main difference, really, is the intent here is not about providing a route to recovering data and, and a route to paying money to, a, to an extortion group. This is about making data unavailable um, permanently uh, just to cause as much disruption and, and havoc as possible. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how similar techniques and tools can be used, but the, the way that they get deployed and the way we see them show up is so dependent upon the threat actor group's ultimate objectives in the environment. Um, which is interesting too, I think, from a, a detection and a mitigation standpoint in that some very similar mitigation techniques could apply to some of these malware, uh, regardless of what their end goal is, because the mechanisms in which they operate are are very similar. Yeah, I mean, when you look at what the Ukrainian cert have said about the attacks, I think they were the ones in mid-January, but Rafe will keep me honest. I think they looked at the scenarios for how these attacks happened, and they were essentially third-party supply chain access or vulnerability exploitation, something like Log4j or content management system um, exploitation. These are things we see all the time with other threats. They are common access methods. So if you if you as an organization are thinking about how ransomware attacks typically happen, you're mitigating some of those major uh, routes into your network, then you're in a pretty good position for the stuff we're seeing in Ukraine as well. As you say, there is nothing substantially different about the techniques that we're seeing being exploited and being used in those attacks. I wonder if there's any speculation to um, the, the fact that these have been largely uh, governmental websites that are being defaced. Is that 
I'm sure that has a nature of the targeting of the attack, but do you think that speaks to the the a difference in the security stance of some other more important and critical infrastructure in Ukraine, or is it just uh, indicative, do you think, of the, the intention just to sow fear and doubt? I think for me, it was primarily about creating confusion, disorientating the population, potentially undermining trust in the government and their ability to deliver critical services. We bear in mind these attacks happened you know, before the military deployment had started, before the, the, the military began to kind of move into Ukraine. It was at a point of heightened tension and, and in my view, was, was intended to just exacerbate that and kind of create concern amongst the Ukrainian population about what might happen. Um, I think that's why government targets were picked and why the financial institutions were picked as well. If you can undermine people's faith in their ability to get money out of banks, then that can be a significant tool in, in really lowering morale, um, causing you know fear, uncertainty, those kind of things. And I know, Rafe, you've got a different view on it. No, not at all. I mean, if anything, the thing I find surprising is that they seem so woefully ineffective. The, I mean, it, it seems like it, when, when the dust had settled, it seemed most of the sites that had come, been taken offline or that were offline were offline as a, a proactive response from the Ukrainian government as opposed to being taken off by the attackers. It was some, you know, some sort of 20 to 30 percent of sites that went down were due to sort of the attack. Um, the rest of it seemed to be proactive. The defacement campaign seemed pretty clumsy and was sort of unclear, you know, what the, the overall message is or was with that. Um, we also saw there was a persona that popped up, Free Civilian, that tried to sort of sell data that kind of aligned with data that the defacement claimed had been stolen. And it was almost like they were trying to make people believe that that significant amounts of personal data had been taken and they were trying to sell on raid forums and they had to set up their own um, their own standalone site to do that. Um, but even that seems like it, there was a lack of clarity around, you know, if that was an information operation, lack of clarity around that operation, how it was supposed to fit into the the overall picture. So in terms of kind of, I mean, first of all, none of this going back to 2014 really seems to have had a major impact on Ukraine and their readiness. Um, I think Ukraine has sort of shown remarkable resilience um, and, and surprised a lot of people in, in a variety of ways um, coming out of this and totally dominated the information war, if you want to sort of frame it in, in that sort of sense, um, versus, versus Russia. Um, whether it's from the, the sort of government side of things or the kind of resilience and the, the messages coming out of the, the civilian population. Um, yeah, they've really, really sort of come out strong. So despite all the efforts being put into sort of cyber attacks on Ukraine over the years, it seems to have been, you know, almost all for nothing. I think it's interesting, too, to, to, to talk about that some of the objectives that Russia has seemed to have um, in Ukraine could have in some ways been accomplished through a successful cyber warfare campaign. I'm thinking about the the recent uh, kinetic attack on the uh, Ukrainian nuclear power plant. Um, if you could get malware in that environment and hamper their ICS controls, you could just as effectively have crippled that power delivery system, which if my last check supplied something like 25% of the power to the country of Ukraine at large, you could have cut that off in a much less visible way with a whole lot less global insight into the tactic that you were deploying. But it seems that if Russia's had to resort to kinetic warfare that's really visible, that if they had any cyber warfare campaigns against critical critical infrastructure, that they may not have been successful. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's always, 
obviously difficult to speculate on what Russia's objectives here are. If it's something as ambitious as regime change in Ukraine, then there's there's few things other than military force that probably could have could have led to that. Um, and and we'll see, uh, I guess, as time goes on, if those objectives become clearer or 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 how Russia kind of adapts them based on its um, progress or lack of with the military campaign. I think it is interesting, as Ray said, that we haven't seen more damaging attacks. Russia clearly demonstrated it could do this kind of thing with the attacks in um, 2015 and 2016 against the power grid, where it did successfully take power supply offline for a period of time for a chunk of the country. So it had clearly been testing this kind of capability. And it is interesting we haven't seen that applied in recent in recent times as much as, as far as we know, based on the reporting we've seen. The only thing I would say is I think that and I'm no expert on ICS systems, but I think it is much harder to cause effects there than people might necessarily expect. And therefore, cyber may not always be a reliable way of causing things like power disruption if you really need that to happen. So if you're if you're sending military forces into a country, probably the easiest way to, to disrupt the infrastructure is to use kinetic means to, to take out, to, to destroy things that you, you need to destroy, rather than trying to rely on cyber capabilities that are, yes, much harder to attribute, but probably less reliable in terms of the out the the overall effect. That may be one reason why we haven't seen some of this capability brought to bear, just because they they didn't feel the need to. But it it does seem odd, given that they had proved before they could conduct these kind of attacks, and you might have expected that would be used to kind of prepare the ground as as the military forces went in, if if that was part of Russia's overall campaign strategy. But but so far we haven't seen that kind of thing happening. I do think it's an interesting global policy issue here too. You know, Rafe, you alluded to this, the, the the seeming focus of some of these attacks to not have collateral damage. I think it could really be an interesting issue as more of these as cyber warfare becomes a bigger component of warfare in general, what you know, how the world views collateral damage related to cyber attacks and if that will surface to the same level of collateral damage and loss of life attributed to more kinetic warfare. I wonder, I know this way speculative and and, and super in the policy realm, but I wonder if either of you have a, an opinion or a bead on how some of those things could change and how we'll see cyber warfare surface as, uh, you know, collateral damage could potentially be attributed to such attacks. I think, in my opinion, this is not going to be a great example of how cyber might form a component of warfare because Russia does not appear, from what I've seen, to have waged a particularly coherent campaign in any sense of the word. It doesn't appear to have been as successful as, as they may have expected. So I think how cyber doctrine kind of forms part of overall military planning and campaigning, I think, remains to be seen to some degree. And I guess we'll know more uh, as time goes by and as we can start to evaluate what's been going on. But I don't know. I think, yeah, I think it's probably too early to say whether this changes the way that cyber will be used. I think what it has demonstrated again is that, um, you know, once military forces begin to wage a kinetic campaign, cyber is perhaps quite a subtle tool that doesn't necessarily apply all that well in that kind of contested environment. So, um, maybe this will teach you something about how cyber can or can't be used during the middle of an actual war. Uh, but it's certainly going to be an interesting one to look back on. You know, hopefully, hopefully we'll see this situation conclude relatively soon in a positive way, and then we'll be able to look back and kind of see what what we think the implications are going forward. I think there's there's potentially also a sort of a a comment here on the the sort of political and organisational maturity that that a government or regime needs to have when it's going to coordinate the use of all these different sort of capabilities. So so the military is perhaps sort of more tightly integrated. 
But when you start to wanting to, to use cyber capabilities in concert with military capabilities across multiple forces, across multiple sort of um, parts of a country and multiple objectives, a lot of that coordination is very sort of actually quite sophisticated, quite subtle, and and actually just just the the sort of um, the sheer sort of volume of effort and um, and planning that needs to go into just a military campaign is perhaps a bit too much in this case, um, and and they need more sort of more sort of plan. I mean, even I don't know, we haven't really heard much about sort of air assets uh, and air cover and use of drones and that kind of stuff. So even that may be, you know, perhaps. Uh, something that is needed more sort of practice for. Do you, do you think it's possible that speaks to Russia's uh, liking to use, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use the word mercenary threat actor groups to help them accomplish their goals, the don't hack Russia, hack whoever else you want over around the globe, just not us. I, I can't imagine how, you know, Rafe, to your point, how hard it would be to coordinate this kind of an attack with a wholly owned unit doing that. But I wonder if <clears throat> this could be symptomatic of, of Russia's general approach to using whomever they can to perform some of these offensives. I mean, I certainly get the impression that um, that they are quite effective at, at certainly leveraging proxy groups in specific sort of planned operations against other targets and, and can use that, the, you know, deception is, is, a, is a strength of theirs, creating sort of, Deniability, creating misdirection—that that is all in their wheelhouse. Um, trying to trying to do it in concert with the the sort of military effort seems to be what, what has stretched them. Um, and, and yes, if 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 they task, you know, an agency, an organization with conducting maybe cyber operations against the West in some in some form of sort of reprisal for sanctions, um, then I think that that might be more, you know, effective either directly or through proxy groups. And, and you know they could orchestrate more of an effect than we're seeing um, in Ukraine for sure. I think that's a great segue to kind of my next line of questioning here, and that's you know I think it could be easy for domestic organizations to think that this doesn't necessarily apply to them. This isn't a concern that they should really have. These are targeted attacks very specifically to Ukrainian government websites and entities. So. They don't need to be concerned, and I, I wonder, you know, what advice you would have for those, and how do we tie this back to a, a real concern that domestic organizations should have uh, for uh, from these attacks that are happening in Ukraine today? I think there's two things that really worry us at the moment. The first is that as economic sanctions and diplomatic measures begin to bite deeper and deeper in Russia, how unpredictable is Russia going to become in terms of how it uses some of its cyber capability? Clearly, Putin will, will President Putin will feel like he needs to get some kind of result in Ukraine that he can he can sell domestically. Uh, as he becomes more and more kind of boxed into a corner by some of the stuff that's going on and by some of the growing dissent in Russia, how's that going to impact on how Russia chooses to use its its capabilities externally? So there is still a potential for that to become a real risk to Western organisations in a way that it hasn't been so far. The second area is that as we see more patriotic hackers or hacktivists begin to get involved on both sides of this conflict. So we've seen claims from a group calling itself anonymous to be targeting Russian infrastructure. We've seen some ransomware groups come out and claim they will act in, in support of, of Russia or the Russian population. We've got all these non-state actors who feel like they have a role in this conflict. And that is a, a second area of concern for us because those kinds of attacks, as Rafe mentioned, can lead to reprisal attacks, can lead to less discriminate attacks against Western organizations because they are Western and, you know, targeting some of the sort of major 
um, figureheads of, of US or European industry or whatever it may be, because they're symbolic of, of those countries or those regions. So we are concerned about the fact that cyber can be quite escalatory in nature. There's a very real chance that as we start to see these tit-for-tat attacks conducted by possibly state actors, but equally by non-state actors, we're going to see some Western companies kind of dragged into that. So it's definitely a situation that we're advising our customers to maintain a very close eye on and be thinking about in terms of how they are how they are using their security controls to um, secure their networks. As I say, I think the, the primary types of threat we're worried about at the moment are denial of service attacks and ransomware or wiper type attacks. And there are things that organizations can obviously do to protect themselves against those. So we're really urging our customers to, you know, dust off their business continuity planning and have a look at their, their resilience to things like a data deletion attack. Do they have the ability to recover if they have those kind of attacks? Look at their control frameworks around prevention, so patching, multi-factor authentication, that kind of thing, detection, and also critically their incident response planning and whether they have the tools and people in place to be able to respond if one of these things does happen. So even though we're not seeing a direct threat to a lot of our customers at the moment, we are obviously concerned that could change quite quickly. And now would be a very good time to just to look at that planning, look at those control frameworks and make sure organizations are protecting themselves from the most likely scenarios should this escalate should the situation deteriorate further over the coming weeks. I wonder for you both, um, having mentioned that, you know, we don't really know how long um, these threat actors have been sitting dormant, uh, or, you know, in some cases not so dormant, but they clearly already had access to these environments and these networks. We've had a number of high profile, uh, really concerning breaches affecting domestic organizations. I'm thinking even as far back as still relatively recent, but the SolarWinds attack, definitely Log4j, I think those are ripe opportunities for some of these threat groups to already be inside domestic organizations waiting for an opportunity or a need to deploy uh, to accomplish some objective on goal. Uh, do you think, I mean, is that a realistic concern that the the cybersecurity uh, you know, group of professionals should have that these people may be sitting and waiting for the opportunity? They may already be in your environments if you haven't been diligent um, in, in detecting and, and rooting them out. I think it depends on depends on the organization, but I think to some extent, I mean, that would be true. We, as network defenders and the security, cybersecurity professionals, we should always be concerned about the potential for someone to have gained access to our network, be in a position where they're going to be able to do some damage. What we're seeing in Ukraine is very specific to the geopolitical context. And, you know, there are organizations out there which are at constant risk from espionage actors or even potentially from actors who are looking to preposition for disruptive attacks. For a lot of organizations, that is arguably less of a concern, but they should be you know, equally or even more concerned about the cybercrime threat, about the threat of ransomware attacks, which may, may lie dormant for less time. They may be much more aggressive and much faster in how they execute their attacks, but they'll use some of the same techniques to gain initial access, to move laterally, escalate privileges and all that kind of thing. So as always with what we're seeing, for us, it's about taking out the lessons we can learn about how to best secure networks and how to best identify threats applying that across customer environments and encouraging them to do the same and just making sure that we're learning the lessons about how these attacks have happened to, to defend against other actors with different motivations, but who nevertheless try to use the same techniques to, to kind of achieve their objectives. Yeah. And I think yeah. there's also, there's also sort of a balance of, um, of some of these capabilities. So, I mean, you think about solar winds detected in 2020, but there was, there was definitely a long, a longer lead up to sort of, testing that um, that attack and sort of positioning where they were infecting all those organizations 
I bet they, you know, but they wish they had that sort of capability right now to give them a few more options. Um, you don't necessarily want to burn that, you know, on a whim, because uh, it takes a lot of time to sort of build up that access, much less time to sort of dismantle it, um, as as we saw sort of after the fact. Um, I mean, we do talk to organizations in the sort of critical national infrastructure space about the 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 pre-positioning sort of threat and that threat actors will want to have this sort of consistent access to their environments just so they have options. And a lot of this will be about creating options for, for policymakers in, um, you know, in, in whether it's Russia or, or wherever else. Um, and then the balance of, you know, do it, does the situation and the potential effect that we can have through this cyber capability uh, warrant the, the sort of detection and, and likely dismantle of that uh, that sort of capability. So a lot of those sort of thinking, um, I think, will be going on as well. Uh, not saying that there is sort of another solar wind style operation going on right now, but we should always sort of be thinking about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mike, you've already mentioned some things, I think, uh, but I, I wanted to at least circle back and provide the audience. Um, what are some things that organizations can be doing today that are tangible to protect themselves as best possible uh, against some of these potential fall-on attacks and the collateral attacks that could come after uh, this offensive continues to wage on in response to either the, you know, the, the sanctions or just threat actor groups being opportunistic? Or what are some things organizations can start doing today to make sure they are in uh, the best possible security posture yeah, this is a question we've been getting a lot in the last couple of weeks, as you would expect from clients we're talking to and from other organizations that we're, we're discussing this with. The advice we've been giving is, is right now, what we've been encouraging organizations to do as a minimum is if you operate in Ukraine, take steps to segregate those networks, to potentially disconnect them if you can. I think at this point, that is a sort of a historic concern now because a lot of those networks have already been shut down or the people involved have, have had to be kind of re, repurposed to Know, fight or whatever it may be but we've been encouraging people to think about sort of trust within your network and making sure that you have segregated appropriately to mitigate some of these, these potential threats the other immediate action we've been encouraging is to understand your attack surface it's really hard to defend if you don't know what you're what it is that you're trying to defend and you don't know what your perimeter is or what your supply chain looks like so have a look at, at your external perimeter have a look at your supply chain and who has access to your network understand what controls you've got in place and what gaps you may have in terms of visibility. These are all actions that organizations can take now to understand the potential risk they're carrying and, and how um, vulnerable they might be to the sorts of, of things we're seeing in Ukraine, but also seeing that every day in ransomware attacks and that sort of thing. And then going forward, it's really about applying some of the, the fundamentals, the best practice around prevention. So, have you, have you got a patching and prioritization vulnerability management kind of approach for your internet-facing infrastructure so that you're patching vulnerable systems as quickly as possible? Have you got multi-factor authentication for remote workers or anyone trying to access critical assets so that you've guarded against credential-based attacks? Do you have detection controls on both endpoint and network to try and spot threat actor activity as early as possible? Do you have a response plan so that you can actually respond and contain these things if you do detect them? Does the business know holistically how it will respond to a cybersecurity event? Um, and have you tested things like recovery options? So having offline backups in the event of a ransomware or a wiper attack, making sure you can restore from them. Because the last time you want the, the, the worst case you have here is trying to run an incident response process or a backup recovery process in the middle of a live incident. Much better to have practiced these things in advance and know that they work 
have some confidence in the processes you've got um, than sort of discovering in the heat of the moment that you've got some major major deficiencies. So there's a there's a bunch of stuff there around prevention, detection, response, recovery that we've been just trying to encourage customers to think about. The key point really is that none of these messages are new. We've been giving these messages out for years now in relation to ransomware and other kinds of attacks, but they continue to be the things that we see being successful where ransomware attacks are not able to achieve their objectives, where we see these attacks get detected and contained because organizations have done these fundamentals and they're well prepared. So that's really what we're trying to encourage. Nothing sophisticated about this. It's not easy for large organizations, but these are the fundamentals that we are just continuing to encourage. I wonder how important do you both think it is for organizations as well to have an understanding of just generally the the adversaries' tactics and techniques as aligned to you know say a framework like the MITRE attack framework so that they have a better understanding of what these adversary actions may look like in their environments as well. I mean, I think the it, it is really important to have some some baseline understanding of the. Um, the tactics and techniques that threat actors use and why you're employing the controls that you employ and to make sure those controls align with, with those sort of tactics and, and techniques. Um, and, and MITRE is a, the MITRE attack frame was a really great way of doing that. You can think about, you know, do I have control gaps against any of these common, um, common tactics? Uh, we're not necessarily getting down to the level of, do I have specific countermeasures that specifically detect every potential variant of that uh, tactic? But in, in terms of the, the sort of, Am I broadly covered across all the different categories that are that are commonly seen in use? Um, I think it's really really useful. It's a great you know acts as a great visualization for sort of management. It's great from a, even just incidents you have to sort of categorize them into those different categories um, and think about how that's how that's worked for you with your control set um, is, is very useful. And I think as well as the the sort of technical side of it and the, and the techniques that we see, the other useful thing about threat intelligence is understanding the intent behind some of this stuff, because it's important to know, do we think the attacks in Ukraine are specific to the what's going on there? Do we think ransomware operators are targeting particular organizations or are they opportunistic? Those kind of things are really important to understand because when you're then looking at which threats you're trying to mitigate, it helps you understand why am I, why am I doing that? Are they the right controls for the kinds of threats we as a business expect to face? And to your point earlier about pre-positioning and long-term kind of espionage campaigns, it depends whether you're going to be a potential target of those campaigns as to how you need to approach your security. For many organizations, it's about trying to make yourself a hard enough target that opportunistic threats like ransomware group will go elsewhere because actually you're, you're too much of a nuisance for them to be worth the effort. They've got plenty of other organizations that are softer and they can gain access to. So it's really useful to understand your threat model. Who do you think you are at risk from? But also what's the intent of some of these groups and does that apply to me Am I a potential target and have I taken the right steps? And as we keep saying to everyone, pretty much any organization that makes money is at risk from ransomware groups. But as you start to move into some of the APT stuff, some of the espionage stuff, it becomes slightly less clear whether or not you're going to be you know, targeted by those groups, whether you need to worry about them from a sort of threat modeling perspective and in terms of, of the control you've got deployed as well. No, absolutely. Um you know, I, I think this has been a really great conversation to, you know, bring to the audience an understanding of, you know, what we know about what's been happening in Ukraine from a cyber perspective, why that may be, uh, you know, of a concern for a domestic organization and what uh, an attack plan could look like that could ultimately implement them. And then, you know, thank you so much for helping us kind of wrap here with an understanding of what organizations can be doing today to make sure they're in the best possible 
uh, security position that they can be in response to all of these things. Now, I want to thank you both for your time today to come and speak with us about this really, really pressing topic and what that could mean for uh, domestic organizations. Um, again, thank you both so much for the time. Rafe, Mike, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Cybrary, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.it.